Hello, and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, <clears throat> the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm your host, D.P. Lyle. This is part of my Forensic Science for Crime Writers series, and I hope um, that what we're going to talk about will help you with your stories. That's the whole purpose of all this, obviously. And today I want to talk about trace evidence. We hear a lot about DNA and fingerprints, and indeed they are the two most individualizing uh, pieces of evidence that can absolutely identify a suspect, perpetrator, or whatever. But trace evidence is huge, and it is very good in your story because it, it's the heart and soul of what cops do. They look for other stuff besides just DNA and uh, fingerprints, and they often find things. When I did a, a podcast earlier on this, when I talked about evidence, you, you remember there was class and individualizing evidence, and class evidence means it belongs to a class. In other words, you've got a, uh, a 38 caliber shell casing. Well, what it means is that excludes all weapons that aren't 38 caliber, but it doesn't identify the specific 38 caliber weapon that left that shell casing at the crime scene. However, if they find the, a weapon, a suspect weapon, and test it and it matches, then they can say, well, it's not only just a 38 caliber weapon, it's this 38 caliber weapon. So that's the difference between class and individualizing, and that's very important in trace evidence. Secondly, I said that evidence is associative, which means it connects someone to someone else or to an object or to a location. In other words, it it ties them to that area. They can't say that they weren't there. And trace evidence can also do that. So when we're talking about trace evidence, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about hair and fibers and glass and paint and soil and plants and stuff like that. So let's look at hair. Hair, you know, we have hair all over our bodies and everybody does and everybody's hair is individual. It looks different. It feels different. It is different. Um, we have pubic hair and head hair and arm hair and back hair and whatever, and the hair can come from a lot of different locations. But the hair, hair has a specific structure, and in the show notes there will be a picture of this. But basically, think of it as a, uh, the old number two yellow pencil. The medulla <coughs> is the center part of it. That would be the graphite that you know actually makes the instrument a writing instrument. And then there would be the cortex, which would be the wood, that the pencil's made of. And then the cuticle would be the yellow paint, the surface. And in hair, it has those three structures. Now, in the medulla, that it's a long, thin tube, uh, again, that would be the graphite that made the, made the pencil write. It can be, there can be none. It can be empty. It can be hollow in hair. Or it can be continuous, meaning that it's a full, thick, thickness exactly like your pencil or it can be interrupted which means that there's areas that has a uh, substance inside the medulla and areas that don't and it can be fragmented which means it's not smooth it's all broken up and fractured in humans we tend to either have no medulla or we have a fragmented one the cortex is oh and the thickness of that medulla in humans is about one-third of the thickness of the hair so one-third of the thickness is the medulla, and then the cortex, and then the little cuticle layer is outside that. The cortex is the largest part, 
that would be the wooden part of the pencil. It's the largest part in humans. And that's where the pigment is contained. And it also contains air pockets and what are called ovoid bodies. And these can be used as identifying things, not only for a species, but for an individual. Now, the cuticle is the covering. And in hair, they look like fish scales. And they tend to point away from the, the uh, growth, growth site. In other words, they point down the hair. Now, they can be what's called coronal, which is crown-like, uh, which is very rare in humans. It means that they kind of tint it up in the middle. They can be sp spineous, which is a petal-like, triangular shape. This is often found in cats. We'll talk about cats in a little bit in a great case. And then they can be what's called imbricate, which is flat, and they're found mostly in humans. So when someone looks at a hair, they can determine this hair come from the family cat or dog, uh, did it come from a human? Did it come from a bear or an aardvark? You know, you can look at the structure of the hair and you can tell a lot about it. Now, when you have a hair, what else will it tell you? Will it tell you the race and the sex and the age of the individual? No, that's very, very difficult. There are some, there's some racial differences, but, but they're not predictable. And sex, unless you've got a, uh, the cuticle, uh, uh, the, the bulb, Unless you've, you've pulled the hair out and have that, you don't have DNA that is of that type that you can determine sex. And age, well, no, you can't. You can determine the site of origin. So you will know that this hair came from the head or from the pubic region or from an arm or leg. So that may be beneficial in the investigation. If someone has left pubic hair at the scene, it probably means they were unclothed because you don't usually drop that out unless you're exposed. One of the other things that's looked at is the manner of removal. Did this hair just fall out? Was it there serendipitously? Was it pulled out? Are there bulbs uh, attached to it? Uh, was it yanked out like that? Was it cut? And you can look at the cut marks on the thing. So that will determine a lot about how the hair ended up there, and that can be very important. Then they can do a chemical analysis of the hair. Now, I'm not going to get into something. There, there are new techniques that show you can look at someone's diet. You can look at, at where they've lived. You can look at their background. You can look at all You can look at what kind of drugs and chemicals and stuff have entered their body because you can do all this with chemical analysis of the hair. But in this respect, if hair is found at a scene and they look at it and it looks like it's been dyed or treated, they can analyze it chemically and determine what kind of dye, even down to the manufacturer sometimes. And they can decide if it's been colored, if it's been treated, if it's been straightened, if it's been curled, what has been done to this hair. Well, if you start looking at that and you identify certain hair care products, you see how that can narrow down and start leading you to, if you have two or three suspects, well, which one of them went to this salon? Which one of them had their hair colored with this coloring agent are treated with this uh, agent to, to make it shinier and healthier and all those things. What kind of shampoo did they use? This can be used to distinguish one suspect from another. And the police do this and you can do this in your story. Now, of course, DNA is important. And if the hair is yanked out and there's a bulb, then you can get nuclear DNA. And that's just like drawing blood and, and having saliva and all that stuff. Now you've got that person's DNA profile and that may, that may lead to the individual. And it would definitely lead, if you get a suspect, to determine is this the person, is this not the person. And, of course, it can be entered into databases. Also, mitochondrial DNA is found in the dead cells, 
That's what hair is made of. Hair is made up of cells that just die. And then as the hair grows, they grow on out until you cut them or they fall out or whatever. Um, but the mitochondrial DNA survives inside those cells. Now, there's no nuclear DNA, but a mitochondrial DNA, and I've given a lecture on that, and you can go back and listen to that in this series, uh, <clears throat> will give the maternal line. It will tell, it will match a, a person's mother and their maternal grandmother and their maternal great-grandmother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can now narrow down suspects by, well, this guy's mother is compatible. This guy's mother matches the mitochondrial DNA in the hair found on the victim. Wow, that's pretty strong evidence. And there's a famous cat, a famous cat story. I told you I was going to bring the cats back into this. I love cats. And it's called the Snowball the Cat Case, and you can look it up. And, in fact, I've got a link to it on my show notes here. But to make a long story short, uh, Shirley Duguay, this took place in Canada, was, was murdered. And the primary suspect uh, was a guy she had a relationship with named Douglas Beamish. And, uh, of course, he denied it and all that. But they saw on on her clothing some white cat hair. And one of the detectives remembered that the Beamish family had a white cat. And so uh, they they went and, and, and figured out, okay, this is the cat, and the cat's name Snowball. Well, it turned out that some of the hair had bulbs to it, so they could get DNA off that white cat hair. And they poor poor snowball had to get stuck with a needle and they drew blood from snowball and they made a match and the case was resolved that way so cat hair was used to solve that case and i love snowball um fibers now fibers are left all the time one of the important principles here and i've talked about this before is the lucard exchange principle and what this means is that <clears throat> everywhere you go you interface with things objects you interface with people you interface with, with furniture, you interface with curtains, you interface with car seats and car rugs, and et cetera, et cetera. Everywhere you go, you're depositing your clothing fibers, your skin cells, your hair, all this stuff. But you're also picking that stuff up. And that was Professor Lacard's principle, that any contact between two people or a person in a place or a person in an object causes an exchange of materials. Fibers you know about. How many times have you walked into where there's a black light and you see lint, which is just fibers, on your black sweater? You say, oh, my God, I'm glad nobody can see this out in the real world. But fibers are everywhere. Look around you. Everywhere you look, the thing you use to clean your glasses or clean your computer screen, your clothing, your furniture, your carpet, everywhere you go, there's fibers around. And fibers are classified as natural, which are things like cotton, wool, silk, hemp, stuff like that. Manufactured, which are the ones where you take like cotton and wood and you use them as the medium and you, you know, crush them up or, or soak them to soften them and you reconstitute them. And this is where things like rayon and acetate come from because you're removing the cellulose, say, from wood and using it. Synthetic are those that are purely made from uh, other materials and they're polymers and these are things like nylon and polyester well okay so if you find a fiber at the scene it's easy for the lab to identify what 
classification it is. I mean, cotton looks like cotton and silk looks like silk and neither one of them look like polyester. And you can look at that under a microscope and determine that. And they will examine it for uh, the diameter and the shape and the color and the shine. Are there any crimps in it? Are there any curls in it? What does it, what does it look like physically? And obviously, if, if you've got a blue fiber and you're looking for a red fiber to, to, to connect to a crime scene, that's not it. <clears throat> but if you've got two red fibers... Well, maybe so. So now you start analyzing them, and you do that with those physical characteristics. So you find a fiber that is a synthetic nylon fiber that is chartreuse in color on a victim, and then you find that there is a product, a, 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 a towel, a, a sheet, a a blanket, something in the suspect's house that matches that thing physically. Well, then you would go into further things. You'd use light. And we use often use um, uh, polarized light for a simple reason. Normal, everyday light, uh, the wave move, angles in all kinds of directions. I mean, uh, 360 degrees. It can go up and down, right, left, whatever, as the wave moves. But polarizing focuses on only the lights that are in a, that 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 modulates oscillates in a single direction and that's why when you put on uh, polarized uh, sunglasses outside suddenly everything snapped into clarity because the light is now restricted to a single plane and your mind can see it better your eyes can detect it better and it takes the scatter of the light so they will often use polarized light to do the other testing on things like fibers. And there's a refractive index that each of these fibers has. Now, you know what refraction is. <clears throat> you probably did it in high school or even, or even in grammar school where you take a, a beaker of water and then you take a glass uh, rod and stick it in the water and it looks like it's broken and bent. And that has to do with the refractive index of the water versus the air. It makes it look like it's moved. Well, they can do this off the fiber and determine what its refractive index is, and this comes out as a number. And so if the refractive indexes then match, now the chartreuse fiber and the chartreuse fiber you found on the suspect, uh, well, this could be the same thing. And then there's birefringence, and what that means is when the, this polarized light hits it, 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 it somehow gets divided into two beams of light that are a little different. Bi means two, and refringence means reflecting or, or bending. And so you get two different lights. And this is another characteristic of this. So you've got the structure, the color, the shape, the size, the thickness, all of this stuff. You've got the refractive index. You've got whether if it's birefringent or not. And all of these things are strong evidence that this fiber left at the crime scene came from this product that was in the suspect's home. It's not conclusive, but it's another piece of evidence. And that brings us to the famous Wayne Williams case. He was the convicted Atlanta child murderer. And you, I'm sure you remember the case. It was a tough one. Um, and there was all kinds of stuff thrown around about it. But at the end of the day, Wayne Williams went down for it. How did they, how did they prove that he was the guy? Well, they did it through fiber analysis more than anything else. 
not only did he have motive, means, and opportunity, but he had fibers. And I think it came down to six different fibers. Three or four of them came from his uh, home, and three or four of them came from his uh, vehicles. So let's look at that. It turns out Wayne had three or four different types of carpeting in his house. So let's say you find on one of these children a couple of fibers, and then on another you find a couple of more, and another you find a couple of more, and pretty soon you got a stack of fibers because fibers are left around on all of these children that got murdered and dumped. And you analyze one of them and say, okay, this was manufactured by DuPont, and they used it in a carpet of this color, and it was sold uh, during this time period at this store, and you find out in the Atlanta area that 10,000 people bought that carpet. Okay, well, that excludes a lot of people, a lot of carpets in Atlanta, but it, that 10,000 in there. That's not going to put Wayne in jail. But now you go to the next one, and you go through all those steps, and it, it becomes, well, only 5,000 people bought this. Okay, and you go to the next one, and it says 5,000 people also bought that. And you go to the third one, and 3,000 people bought that. But how many people bought all four? And then you throw in the car uh, carpet fibers. So you can bring that down and find out where these carpets were, if they're standard equipment, what what company made them, what type of vehicle they were put in, when they were put in, all of that. And so you can narrow down a lot of things that may point the finger back at the suspect. If it came from a Ford Bronco and it was a certain color that was only put in white Ford Broncos, a caramel color or something like that. Well, look what you've done. You've narrowed all this down to a handful of cars versus every car out there and every car carpet out there. And oh, by the way, the suspect owns a white Ford Bronco with that particular color. All right. Well, in the Wayne Williams case, what are the odds that any other person who had motive, means, and opportunity would have all six of those fibers connecting them to these children. I mean, it becomes astronomical. It becomes like DNA and fingerprints. It becomes very, very individualizing. And that's what happened in this case. Let's look at glass. Let's say some broken glass is found at a crime scene. And let's say it came from an automobile headlamp. Hmm. A hit and run or they ran the car into a tree trying to escape and broke the headlight and it fell, or, or some other glass object is left broken at the scene. So they can take that glass and start looking at it. Where do they start? Well, of course, they look at the physical exam. It's color, it's thickness, it's shape, it's pattern, how opaque it is or not. So it's pretty easy to tell the difference between window glass and milk glass or some colored glass from uh, some, some uh, hand-blown bauble. So you, you can tell the characteristics of the glass, and so you start looking, well, where's the source of this? All right. Then they, they will, once they do that and say, okay, it's a red glass that's a flat, plate, flat, flat piece, or it's a headlamp, and we're not sure all the characteristics of it, so next they look at it optically. Does it transmit, reflect, refract the light? How do they analyze it optically? Then they look at it chemically. 
lot of lead pigments are put into glass to cut to uh, lead and pigments are to color the glass and they put boron in it in window panes to stabilize the glass and so all of these things can narrow it down you can say well this came from a 2010 nissan and it was the right front headlamp that's where this piece came from and so now you're going to be looking for nissans that fit that time frame that this particular glass of this particular shape color and these optical and chemical uh, components that they found match and so you've narrowed it down to say okay the hit and run driver was driving a nissan manufactured during this time period okay let's get better what if they then find a suspect vehicle and what if it's got some little bit of front end damage? And what if the right front headlamp is broken and a piece has fallen out? And let's say the piece that was found at the crime scene matches that broken headlamp like a jigsaw puzzle. It fits it perfectly. These are called fracture patterns and no two things break the same way. If you want to experiment with that, just get some toothpicks or something like that and snap a half a dozen of them in half and look at the edges. They all broke differently. They all fractured differently. Fracture patterns are extremely important. They fit like if someone tears paper. You can match it. Say, no, it was torn from this roll of paper or it was torn from this pad because the fracture pattern matched perfectly and no two things fracture the same. Paint is another trace evidence. Now, paint comes in a lot of different different varieties. Of course, you got interior paint and exterior paint. You got marine paint. You got paint that has lead and paint that doesn't have lead. You you got all kinds of paint. You even got finger paint. the The point is is that paint comes in a lot of different a lot of different types and styles, and each of them will have a different uh, binders and pigments and extenders and modifiers and these are the things that just make the paint the paint and so if you find a chip of paint in someone's clothing and there's been a knockdown drag out in a living room and the walls have been damaged and you can match that paint chemically and optically and and uh, and visibly to the paint at the crime scene then that's pretty strong evidence that this person was there um but what about the car that we talked about? Once again, let's say that a chip of paint is found in the victim's clothing or right next to the victim. And you turn out well, this was a color. This was a charcoal gray that was manufactured by Ford and put on F-150s uh, from 2015 to 2019. I'm just making this up, but you get the picture. So now they know what they're looking for. They're looking for a Ford F-150 of that vintage. Okay, fine. Let's say they develop suspects, and lo and behold, one of them owns that exact vehicle. And lo and behold, it looks like the fender is dented, and there's a paint chip missing. Once again, if that paint chip fits perfectly into the defect in the car, the crime scene chip fits perfectly, again, fracture patterns and those are highly highly specific but let's say that's not the case but let's say this car has been repainted a couple of times 
Well, each time it's repainted, you know, if you look at car paint, they have an electroplated primer, and then they have the rusty looking primer, and then they have what's called a base coat, which is where the color is, and then they have a clear coat to protect it. And so when someone goes in and gets a car repainted, they sand it some, but they mainly are removing the clear coat and maybe a little of the base coat, but they're not completely removing everything. And then they slap on another base coat and they slap on another clear coat. And then let's say a few years later, the car gets repainted again. Well, what you've got, if you take a chip of paint that is left at a crime scene, again, a hit and run or banging into something, or, or maybe somebody shot, the, shot the, uh, the automobile as it was leaving and knocked a chunk of paint out of it, and now you start looking at these layers. And let's say it went from black to white to red. And you've got multiple layers, and it's almost like looking at a seven-layer cake. And what are the odds that another vehicle would be painted in that same sequence? The crime scene chip matches the same sequence, even if it doesn't fit jigsaw puzzle type, but it matches the same sequence on that car. What are the odds? And to go further, each individual layer can then be chemically and optically analyzed and find out, well, it, it matches identically. Well, what does that mean? That means that the driver of this car, and it may not be the owner, so that's where police work comes in, and that's where you got to write your story. The owner of that car, or that car, was the one that struck the victim. And so the owner and whoever has access to it and whoever might have been driving it or whoever stole it has some answering to do. Soil and plants also are trace evidence. <clears throat> and this is pretty cool. Um, you remember uh, a classic example is you remember uh, the movie In the Heat of the Night. And uh, uh, Sidney Poitier, you know, Mr. Tibbs, found a, a little moss at, at the site of a murder and it went back to Mr. Endicott's um, his uh, uh, plant uh, where, he, where he grew his orchids and all this stuff in his solarium and he, he, he used that particular moss because the plants liked it. Well, that was a very rare moss and especially for rural Mississippi. And so this bit of moss that was found at the crime scene goes back to connect Endicott to this murder. And that, that was the key to solving the crime in, in the, in that, in that classic movie. Well, this happens all the time. Let's say someone, a body's found dumped in the desert, but then they find that there's pine pollen on it. Well, where, where did that come from? I don't see any pine trees around here. Well, it must have come from where this person was previously, maybe where the crime scene was. And so let's say now you're, you're, now you open up your investigation. What you've got is a secondary crime scene. You've got a dump site where the body, you need to find the primary. So you've got a couple of suspects and you start looking at where would they be? Where would they be where they would contact pine trees? And maybe one of them has a cabin, you know, up in the woods, up in Arrowhead or something here in California. And there's pine trees around there. Okay. That's pretty strong evidence that pine trees are somehow involved in the history of this person's demise. It may not be where the crime took place, but it might be. Let's go further. 
let's say you believe by evidence some disturbed areas that the murder took place in the backyard of this particular residence and there was a huge pine tree right there and you're thinking that you see the bark smudged up like there might have been a fight there and somebody hit the hit the tree with something or you see footprints around there or you have maybe some neighbors heard a disturbance and they heard someone screaming for help you know there's a million ways that the police can start focusing on this person and lo and behold he's got a pine tree and so pine pollen's on the victim and yet the victim didn't live around pine, pine trees the victim had no reason to have pine pollen all over him well they can also take pollen from that tree and they can take pollen from the victim who's 50 miles away and they can do dna analysis and say this pollen not only came from a pine tree it came from that pine tree so now is that associative evidence or what how did this pollen from your tree in your backyard get on this victim who you say you didn't know you see where that's going well trace evidence is a lot of fun there's it's out there there's tons of it uh, and whether if it's hair and fiber or glass or paint or soil and plants and whatever you can use these in your stories now there's a lot to all of this and you'll probably have to you know do your research and look into things and i always suggest you know forensics for dummies or how done it forensics because there's a lot more about each of these these entities in each of those books so you can learn even more about this but when you're when you're plotting your story don't just think about video cameras and cell phones and dna and and fingerprints think about trace evidence think about how hair and fiber and glass and paint and soil might might just might help your story become even richer or better so that's my thoughts on trace evidence at this time and i hope you enjoyed this and i hope it comes you hope it comes becomes useful to you and so until next time this has been dp lyle for uh, this podcast and as always there will be show notes on my blog and you can go there and there will be links to some of these cases and until next time have a great day